No. Okay. I'm recording again now. Yes. 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 One, two, three. Why must everything just be broken and in various states of being broken? Brokenness. Such is the way of the world. It's bumming me. You're talking about your, your app icons still? Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about my app icons. Uh, <sighs> in my doc, my app icons randomly seem, and it's not even just for the same applications. It's just for random apps. I'll restart, and then I'll open one, and, and then I'll notice that it goes to like the gray rectangle with the A with paintbrushes on top of it, just like that default app icon. They'll just switch to that, a few of them. And then I'll restart, and then those will be fixed, and some other ones will be different. And it makes it really hard to uh, command tab through my apps, which I do all the time. I do that a lot. I didn't really think about how, just how much uh, app icons help with visual grepping. I mean, it makes sense, but I never really thought about that. But it's kind of infuriating. Yeah, that one sounds pretty frustrating. I haven't been running into that, but I've been getting... I feel like more and more issues every day with all of my Apple devices. Mm -hmm. Like my phone just stutters all the time or apps will just quit more and more often. Updates not installing correctly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just all sorts of things. Just like like all sorts of little things, little annoyances and weirdnesses that I feel like weren't there categorically a couple years ago. Yeah, I kind of have like two veins of thought. Like number one, I know I'm deeper in into the the foxhole with development and things, so maybe I notice things more. But I don't think that's true. I think that the other school of thought is correct, and things are just more and more broken. <laughs> uh, I I got an iPhone 10 a few days ago in the mail, and Face ID camera is broken. The true depth sensor it doesn't work. So they're sending me a new phone. I think it comes tomorrow, according to the tracking number. <laughs> That that's one thing about Apple is they've always been really good about the support. Like if something is broken and it's their fault, they're or even in a lot of cases if it's not their fault, they've always been really good about fixing it. Um, but I so I had I'm sure as a lot of people who had a first a very first generation like a Series Zero as they're called now Apple Watch, my my battery got messed up and started to bloat, which popped the pops the front screen off right, and so you have to take it in and they replace the battery and put it all back together for you. So I, that happened to me, and I, I did that, and you know they were great about it. It was our warranty, and they're like, "Okay, that's fine, but we'll replace it." And they replace it, and I get the they get I get the watch back, right? And it'll hold the charge for an hour or maybe two before it oh. dies. Like you take it off the charger, it's a hundred percent. It's a bummer. It's two hours, and and it'll be dead. Like you go to look at the time, and it's just dead. Um, obviously not super useful in terms of being a watch, uh, or a fitness <laughs> tracker at that point. Um, so. You know, I was in the middle of a move and stuff. I take it back to the Apple store uh, after after a little bit. Um, and they're like, oh, no, sorry, uh, that repair is no longer in warranty. It's like, well, wait, you took my broken watch and then replaced it with a broken watch. And now you're saying that that's uh, now I can't do that. And they're like, yeah, sorry, we can't we can't replace it now because uh, you waited <laughs> too long to bring it in. It's like I was I was moving and changing jobs and stuff like that. Sucks. I had I had other things going on. Um, and I, ju- I just feel like I don't know. It's this company that that we all spend, uh, at least I know you and I spend sure, yeah. way too much time and money on, <laughs> and and part of the reason has always been that I I knew that if something did go wrong, I'd I get that support, and I feel like I feel like they're starting to falter with stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, it's that kind of sucks. Oh, by the way, you waited too long, and uh, there's nothing we can do about it. Like I I I get it because there's so many people, you know, 
there's just so many people that buy Apple products and similar things happen. So it's just like a torrent for them, torrent of people, but it still sucks. You know, like what are you supposed yeah, to do? If, if only they were the richest and most successful company in the world. Oh, that's true. Yeah, come on. <laughs> then then they could probably do something about this. Yeah. But you, you mentioned like being developers and noti- noticing these things more. And I think there, there's definitely some component of that. Like sometimes I'll install a beta that I probably shouldn't have installed and I'll have <laughs> issues. And I get that that's my fault. Sure. But, uh, but I'm talking about stuff like the other day I couldn't, I couldn't even airdrop between my phone and my computer. Like the, it, my computer would just never show up on my phone no matter what I did. And it's just like like stuff like that. That's not a technical thing. That's built as a feature for non-technical users, in fact, that right. make it easier to move files around. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it just doesn't do the thing that it's made and designed to do. Yeah, oftentimes it doesn't. It seems like, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I just kind of am trying to learn to live with it and accept it. it. It's funny because it just seems like software in general, things are more and more broken. So obviously we talked about Meltdown Spectre, but it seems like it's not even just giant things like that. It's just everyday things like sites, big apps that that a large majority of our, our industry rely on going down You know, a couple of days in a row. Uh, I think GitHub went down like twice last week, didn't it? I, I wouldn't know. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and this I wasn't like massive downtime, but it still just kind of puts that thought in the back of my mind. Oh, GitHub's down again. And whenever you attach the word again to that, that's not great uh, when you think about it. Or every time I'm in Heroku, it seems like when I actually log into the dashboard, because a lot of times I do pipeline stuff from the command line. When I do log in, I see banners like, "Oh, GitHub is experiencing uh, this thing, which is obstructing pipeline deploys and stuff." So maybe it's just been happening more recently. I don't, I don't know what the deal is, but yeah, it's, which, I don't know, just something that's more and more in my mind. Cause I think I just see it more or maybe more people are, maybe I'm just following their own people on Twitter. I've been, I've been unfollowing people like crazy in an effort to try to make my Twitter timeline a more positive place, but maybe I have more work to do there. That's a healthy goal. I've, I've just been not on Twitter for yeah. the last several months at this point um i'll go on occasionally for you know some catch up on some specific person's tweets or something like that but for the most part i've just been avoiding it entirely um and it's been i think pretty positive (laughs) for me mentally yeah sure uh but at the same time i do feel like it it is a great way to get get tech news and that sort of thing yeah so i probably i'm probably just due for some sort of pruning maybe i just clear the follower list and start over following yeah, list. Whatever. I thought about using lists and stuff too. Cause I know there are features that you can use to control that. Uh, cause I, do but are you really going to like, are you going to maintain that? That that's my issue with, with that sort of feature. Maybe I think, well, I'll go and I'll get it. real OCD one day and, and go in there and set up all of my, all of my playlists and whatever, or, or, you know, tag all my MP3s, mm-hmm. which is what this feels like to me. Oh, <laughs> but then I'm not I, yeah. like, I'm not going to go in every single day or every week and, and like maintain my Twitter list and be like, Oh, that, this person should go into list 23 or whatever. Tag I don't know. MP3s. I, uh, that's tough. That's tough for me. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. I, I follow like a very small, mostly most of the new stuff that I follow are kind of just newsletters, like the email newsletter stuff. So they have usually have Twitter accounts and they'll tweet whenever they get a new, whenever they release a new uh, digest and I'll check it out that way because I usually don't get them in my email. Uh, I don't really follow, I follow some project maintainers, but sometimes, and understandably so, sometimes the project managers or project uh, maintainers will just kind of blow some steam into Twitter 
And uh, I think the most recent case was um, ASI stuff being debated again. Like, should we use semicolons? Should we not use semicolons? And that's always heated. And I saw a couple of different uh, prominent uh, JS library maintainers just kind of blowing off some steam and having at some people on Twitter. <laughs> and then uh, I saw some more people screenshotting GitHub comments, just kind of some toxic GitHub comments. And uh, that's why I don't think I've ever seen a newsletter account do that. So that's why I just follow more of them these days. Yeah, that's that's pretty fair. Um, actually, do you have any? While we're talking about newsletters, do you have any recommendations for uh, Elixir newsletters? Elixir, uh, yeah. So, one one thing I've noticed, and I hopefully hopefully it stays this way, but the Elixir community ha- is like super upbeat and positive. Uh, I haven't really had any bad experiences, and so you can pretty much check out the the my Elixir status hashtag on Twitter and. Uh, you so basically there's there's uh i can't remember the guy's name but he started that hashtag a long time ago and so he goes through and retweets uh my elixir status stuff and so if you get on that hash if you get on the hashtag you'll see like people talking about new things that are cool and you'll see people talking about things that they've done that they think are cool but you'll also see some newsletters getting retweeted i think there's one called elixir weekly i would i'd have to actually look them up maybe i can just put them in the show notes but that's one one place I've gone consistently for Elixir things is the My Elixir status hashtag. Cool. That's good to know. I never would have even thought to look for something like that. So that's really good. Yeah. I mean, I've seen like the Elixir forum is pretty good too. Sometimes people can get a little bit snippy there, but uh, that's also, you know, it's just, it is what it is, especially around discussions. Um, but I haven't really seen any like outright trolling or anything in the Elixir community yet. So I'm knocking on all of the wood in my house. Uh, hoping that that kind of stays that way. But yeah, I have like maybe one or two Elixir newsletters that I subscribe to, and I'm pretty sure one's called Elixir Weekly. That looks to be one of the big ones based on a a quick Google. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, but really I don't like, I don't use a ton of packages and stuff. I really just use the big ones, Ecto and Phoenix, and a few smaller ones. Um, I use Timex for for time stuff. There's a few different um, time libraries, like Calendar is a good one too. Uh, but yeah, other than that, I, like most things that I use are built in. Like for Design Collective, I use a package called Money, which just helps me work with money in a nice way. And I use one called Decimal, which helps me work with decimals in a nice way. But <laughs> I find myself reaching for third-party packages less and less. Then, especially than I did in, in Ruby and Rails. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I'd have to go through and look at DK. I know I do use a few, but uh, even like API wrappers, I started or I stopped relying on those as much because they would all be in various states of completion, especially the Stripe ones. So I figured, why not just why not just use HTTP Poison to build a request myself? It's not that hard, you know. And then I'm not having to rely on a third party dependency that may or may not be. Uh, completed, and I don't have to rely on any like weird quirks that that library might have. So that's what I've been doing. Yeah, sending HTTP requests is pretty easy. Like generally speaking, it's it's a pretty simple thing to do. Sure. And and the idea th- those API wrappers, I used to rely on them very heavily as well. And I I, I just feel like these days, I, why why even bother? Yeah. So halfway through the DK rebuild, I was I had started using one called Stripe Itty Stripe. And then that had gotten new a new maintainer, and they were redoing it all from the ground up to make it more flexible. 
And then <laughs> I was like, well, uh, that sucks. And uh, like, it's good for the, you know, good for the package. But uh, basically what I did was I noticed that they, uh, since we're using uh, Stripe Connect, we have to sometimes pass around uh, Stripe account IDs uh, to do perform actions on behalf of a connected account. And so I actually have to send extra parameters through the request and the library wasn't letting me. So uh, part of, some of my, my basic Stripe requests are going through the Stripe wrapper and then the other ones are just uh, requests that I wrote by hand. So it would be really easy to go back and refactor those uh, away from using the package. But that's like the case in point, like why I stopped relying on things like that and started just doing HTTP requests because it would also just be just as simple to create a module called Stripe and then wrap whatever I need in a couple of functions. You know, it's basically the same thing, only I have more intimate knowledge and I have a more intimate control over the things that I can do. And I don't have to wait for people to release things. And I don't have to like point dependencies to GitHub branches. I don't have to do any of that stuff. Yeah, that's a big thing. I feel like every time I use an API wrapper, I end up pointing to somebody's branch of a branch of yep. a branch. But the, the one <laughs> yep. situation where I kind of still will use an API wrapper is if there's a, a, a well-maintained one by like a first party. Yes, yeah. That's a good point. Um, it, because a, a lot of times they, they will provide certain niceties and just, just ways of working with the system that make it feel more natural for how they've designed the, their their architecture, like how, how things work for them. And mm-hmm. it allows you to kind of interface with that a little bit easier, um, at least in a lot of cases. But but third-party ones these days, I I generally don't see a whole lot of reason to use them. Yeah, yeah. I feel the same way. And so there's, I have some issues in GitHub for Dynamic Collective to go through and remove things. I just haven't had time to get to them. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've pretty much done the same thing. But really, I just, I don't, I haven't reached for a lot of packages. I think when I first started writing Elixir and working with Phoenix, I reached for more packages. But the newer projects that I've started just for like side projects here and there, I really don't use anything beyond Phoenix and Ecto. Or if I'm doing something complicated with decimals, I'd use the decimal package because, uh, it's it's just one of those things where there's certain things where you should probably use packages and not rely on on um, your knowledge to write something like something like you probably shouldn't write your own bcrypt stuff uh, or uh, cryptography stuff and uh, I think that like decimals and some to an extent like money things are one of those things as well if there's a good package that you can rely on that's uh, tested really well I would I would go ahead and rely on that but. Yeah, as I learned more about Elixir, I stopped depending on so many external packages because uh, there's a lot of really nice idioms that allow me to to do things in a pretty concise way, and it's not as complicated or doesn't require as deep of a, a solution as maybe some other languages would. Sure. Yeah, and I mean, I'm I'm obviously relatively new to Elixir and the whole ecosystem as compared to you. You've been writing it for for a while now. Um, but but I feel that same sort of thing. It's just one of the, one of the initial feelings. It's like, oh, I I kind of get to define how my whole application works. Not yeah. that you can't do that in other languages, but it, but it, it feels as though there there's more of a just just that that seems to be more the more like the ethos of, of the of the language. It's just like this this is how we do things. We we will implement our own basic things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah yeah, like uh, having having protocols and having. Um, Especially with Ecto, being able to create your own uh, types, basically. And uh, I'll have to link to this one, too. But one of my friends 
that works for the outline, they work with Mark, Markdown a ton. And they, so he basically wrote a custom ectotype that automatically serialized to and from text. So it took Markdown, serialized it to text. And then whenever you loaded something from that column, took the text out and serialized it to Markdown for you automatically. So there wasn't even really any middleware that needs to happen. It just works when you fetch the field. It's pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, Ecto in general just seems super well designed. Um, again, I'm, I'm still, I still feel like I'm just starting to scratch the surface of a lot of this stuff. But it, it, but it's just reading through the docs, and and I think we discussed this in the last episode. I spent a ton of time reading through all the docs I could, and and just getting that that base understanding. It's just I feel like is given a pretty good sense of what the creators are and maintainers are going for. So th- so that in that how they're thinking about structuring databases and how how you should store and retrieve data and and it just seems it's it's like a breath of fresh air man yeah having yeah. having scheme having multiple schemas pointing to the same table and just being able to pull out the bits of data you need for for a given set of operations and it's really cool yeah i i'm still kind of on a journey there too uh, I wa- I've been wanting to write a blog post about this or talk about it. I've talked about it some on the show, I think, but like how I'm doing, I have multiple schema files and they point to the same tables. Um, and like you said, if I have, for example, you say like a, a, a public accessible blog post endpoint and uh, an admin side blog post endpoint, the public side, there's probably lots of maybe at least some data points that you don't need to surface to the viewer. So you, you wouldn't even really need to fetch those from the database. And all, all that goes back to just performance, just small wins. Multiple small wins equal one big win. Uh, I did see an interesting blog post. I'll have, to, I'll have to put this in shorts as well. And I'm not sure if I linked it to our Discord that we use, but um, there was somebody that was making a MUD, uh, which is like one of those old school text-based dungeon games, multi-user dungeon. And this guy wrote a blog post talking about another approach to contexts. And... So, for example, in Design Collective, I have things kind of namespace. So, within the context of Marketplace, I have a Marketplace context, and then I have a Marketplace.manage and a Marketplace.browse. And anything inside of the browse uh, context, all the functions deal with only public, publicly accessible data. The schemas only surface publicly accessible data. Um, and the manage side, that's where all like you know. So, it, on, the, on the browse side, there's not even any like update or delete or create. Uh, functions in there. It's all just read only. And all the crud stuff happens on the managed side. Uh, and so the other approach that this guy used was he had uh, different namespaces like data. Uh, so any any sort of like data changes or operations happen through the data namespace. And uh, I'd have to look it up really quick to see what the other namespaces were. But it was, it kind of like, I had never thought to structure things that way. And I was like, that's a, that sounds really interesting. That sounds kind of nice. Uh, all the data happens through data. All the the getters happen through another namespace, and uh, that's what I think is really cool. Is that there's there's so many different ways to to build what you need to build because every application is different. Granted, there are some things that are really similar, like user authorization, registration, and stuff like that. But that's you know from there it diverges and everything's different. Right, and I'm I'm sure all, all this stuff is actually relatively young, um, in terms of how long the the idioms have had to form and all that for for the language for the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there is going to be some dominant patterns that appear over the next couple of years that tend to be how people build most things. But I really I really do love that about about Phoenix is that that it seems to it, it really 
says, hey, we can't tell you how to build your application. You, you really need to go think about that. We can only, we can only say, here's a, here's a really nice way to have a web thing that interfaces with your application at various points, right. or a real-time thing that interfaces with your application. But you really need to go figure out how, how you're building out your app and what your app needs to do, yeah. and what special considerations it has. And I, I think that's, that's such, a, such a useful and important thing to, to say early to, to people who are learning something um, like a web framework. Because otherwise, you do you do sort of get into the thing where people just dump everything in their models, and yep. then that's that that's that, right? Yeah, and to a large extent, that was happening a lot in Phoenix uh, One. People would just so they would treat their schema files like a model, and then I remember correctly way back, Phoenix actually called them models. Yeah, I still I come across the occasional bit of documentation that refers to ecto models. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And uh, yeah, and it was it was a whole thing when they talked about removing them. People were like, "Why would you do that?" Blah blah. blah. Uh, and yeah, so they that's basically what they said was we realized that we were encouraging um, people to not necessarily encouraging. They were making it too easy for people to make bad decisions. Is what they said. Uh, not not even necessarily bad decisions, but just like not thought through decisions yeah yeah they, like not yeah. forward thinking decisions people were relying more on phoenix to do things and they were relying on whatever internal architecture they were building so they would build things right. into places where they didn't belong so you end up having lots of logic happening in controller um you end up having um just code in places that they didn't belong and code in places that made it hard to maintain an upgrade over the lifetime of an application which kind of flies in the whole face of the Erlang and Elixir uh, ethos, I guess. Like the whole, the whole, the whole point of Elixir and Erlang is to have long running services that are easy and safe to uh, uh, refactor and build onto. And uh, yeah, so people were kind of shooting themselves in the foot. And so uh, Phoenix is like, we need to make a hard turn here and, and take a step back and maybe make it, uh, a little bit harder for someone to adopt up front in exchange for having a more maintainable and refactorable solution down the road. And I and I remember a lot of forum blog forums and blog posts where people were like, I don't know if, if I like this and I think that um, you're going to lose uh, a lot of newcomers to Phoenix because of that. And I thought that was an interesting way to think about it. I saw people kind of saying that the main focus of Phoenix should be user onboarding, which I disagree with. I think that Phoenix get, is getting it right in that the main the main focus of Phoenix is is being the web portion of the layer and then getting out of the way, you know, and then letting you sure. write Elixir and then you use Phoenix to surface data from the Elixir application that you wrote. I think that's that's perfect uh, symmetry. I think in, in building a web based service, right? It's just it's just a a set of ideas for how. Clients, web clients, whether they're real time or just standard HTTP requests or whatever, mm-hmm. are going to access your application that you wrote. And your application can exist. It could have other methods of access as well. Like it doesn't have to just be the web thing. And, and I think thinking about it decoupled like that it has been very freeing for me personally. Yeah, yeah, same exactly. So it's yeah, it's been. I, I really do love. I love Elixir. I like the language a lot. I like Phoenix a lot. I like the ideas a lot. And I'm just learning. I feel like it's kind of pushed me back into learning about more programming. I I don't spend a lot of time reading articles on Phoenix. I don't spend a lot of time Googling like how to do X in Phoenix. I just don't. 
Whereas with Rails, I would always prefix whatever I was Googling for with Rails. How to do X in Rails? How should you approach this in Rails? How should you do Y in Rails? You know, I find myself not doing X. Exactly. Now it's just (laughs) X Elixir because I'm just writing Elixir and I happen to be using Ecto to to, uh, get and write data, you know, but everything else is just pure Elixir. Yep. It's a beautiful concept, man. Yeah. It is. And that's sweet, sweet pattern matching. <laughs> yeah, I've pattern matching has been super impressive. Have you have you messed with X unit yet? Still no X unit. I've been slacking off this week, man. I did get I did get the game to a point. Um, well, I call it a game. Right now, you can just move back and forth. Uh, <laughs> sure. But I got it to a point where it will render multiple players, and you can move them back and forth. And the there's lag prediction or. Um, not lag prediction, but client client prediction and movement reconciliation to to compensate for lag, and like it, it's a very simple game right now, but it is it is a game, and so I'm I'm making progress there. Got to play around with gen servers a little bit. Ooh. That's my main game loop runs in a gen server. Yeah. Um. So that's been that's been kind of cool. Uh. There's such a gen servers are a really really neat concept, but I feel like kind of hard to wrap your head around. I feel like I'm still kind of struggling to to get them fully in my brain. Yeah, and I think I think some of the syntax is a little bit obtuse, and I think that's partly what, uh, and I'm, I'm not an agent server expert by any means, but I had never really been exposed to something like that. Uh, and the, the I, so like you, like when you call, uh, what is it, use, use gen server, I can't remember exactly, uh, when you're, when you're defining your module, I think you call like use gen server and that pulls in all the the boilerplate. I think that hides a lot of stuff. And if you're not familiar, like super familiar with why you would need a gen server, how exactly you would use it, it's confusing. Uh, because up to the point where I'd started using Elixir, uh, really besides Postgres, I'd only use Redis. And to me, uh, a job queue was, you store something in Redis and something else pulls it out later and then does a thing. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> sure. Like that's the whole concept for me, you know? And so when I look at gen server, I was like, okay, well, what would I use this for? And the whole like start link thing and the whole, um, gen servers having, having names, like you can name them and then, uh, callbacks specifically, you know, it just, I like, I get it, but I didn't get it. If that makes any sense. No, that, that, that totally makes sense. And I, I think it doesn't help that, most of the examples that I've been able to find of gen servers are are really um, trivial. Hello world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're they're really really. It's like here's here's how you make a a map that can run in a separate process. And it's like, well, I don't really know why I would ever need a map just just a plain old map <laughs> right. that runs in a separate process. That seems like a ridiculous overkill. Yeah. But so the the way I'm using it in particular is uh, that I have a a showdown match server. And anytime a new match gets started, and right now these just get started manually, but um, obviously eventually a matchmaking service will will create them. Um, but a match gets started, it has a match state, and the match state is just a just a struct that has like a list of the user IDs and a map of all the entities uh, when it was created, what inputs it it's processed, what inputs it needs to process in order to generate the new world state, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, everything that a, that a match of a game might need, right? And then every time uh, a user joins, it, it, there's just a, a handle call in my server, my gen server, that that takes the user join and user ID tuple, and it just it just smashes it onto that state. 
that we have. Mm-hmm. And then it, it ticks itself. So there's actually a, uh, there's a really cool thing you can do process send after. Right. Um, and then you can, you, you can actually have, instead of a handle cast or a handle call, you can just have a handle info, which is just like a meta, a meta kind of thing, I guess. That's probably a bad description of it, but it, but it's just like a, when you do process send after, it'll actually call the handle info callback. And sure. so I just have a tick that gets scheduled and then schedules the next tick based on how long the previous one took and all that kind of stuff. Oh, interesting. Um, and then it, that, that tick is actually what goes through in increments all of the positions of the entities and stuff based on the inputs received that are stored in the match state that it initially gets. So it's kind of like, I don't know if that, that's probably a little bit of a convoluted audio explanation, but hopefully <laughs> that gives somebody a bit of an idea of what you might use a gen server oh, for yeah, no, beyond that, just a key value store. That helps me a lot too. So like, and one thing that I'm working on uh, process uh, send after I'm using that uh, to basically yep. make a recurring job system. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly how how my tick scheduling works right now. Yeah, yeah, uh, but that yeah, that's really the only thing I've used them for. And what's funny is that when I was building DK, it's, as soon as I needed to build any jobs, I just looked for some job library. As much as before, I said I didn't rely on third party libraries. This is one of them that I do use. And it's called Quantum, and I kind of wish I didn't use it. And it's well, I I can't say that. It's back and forth. I think that part of <laughs> why. Part of why I needed to use it was because Heroku and, and her, the way Heroku works. And uh, in contrast, the way uh, that if you're using a gen server, especially if you're storing any sort of state memory, um, they just won't really work well on Heroku because the dynos can restart on every deploy and also they get restarted once a day. Uh, yeah, at a minimum of once a day, at you're going to lose all your state. Yeah, so you can't really yeah. predict. So yeah, at a minimum once a day, you're going to lose all your state. So by default, you need some way to back that up. And I know that Erlang has that uh, Elixir has that with ads, and I'm pretty sure that on on a reboot that you can write the the content contents of a gen server or at least ads uh, to disk somehow. But again, there you go on Heroku, you don't really have disk access, so uh, it's a whole thing, you know. And uh, yeah, so that's really the only reason why I'm using uh, Quantum and Redis for design collectives because I'm on Heroku, which is a stateless hosting setup. It's a container-based setup. And uh, with Elixir and Erling, it's a stateful stateful setup. So I can't really rely on any of that stateful stuff. I need to store it in Redis because, you know, you don't want to have like 50,000 emails queued and then all of a sudden your dyno restart and you're only halfway through. (laughs) You know, that would just not be good. Um, But... Anyhow, yeah, that's that's really cool, and that was that's what I would do probably if I didn't, if I could just know that my server wouldn't restart at any given time, I would probably just use a gen server that would pull that stuff in because it would be much much more performant and it would be uh, one less dependency. I wouldn't need Redis. I wouldn't need to pay for Redis. Oh yeah, it's it's crazy how performant it is. Like I'm not I'm not simulating a complex three world or anything right now, but uh, my ticks even with. I can, I can fire up 12 instances of Chrome and have them all connect and my computer will be lagging like crazy from <laughs> all the Chrome, sure. but the, but, but Phoenix itself or, or Elixir will just be sitting there ticking away and the ticks take zero to one millisecond for oh, players, yeah, it's which crazy. is pretty, pretty sweet. Even with design collective. So with the rails version, I had a staging server, which is like bare, bare bones, like $7 a month on Heroku and then I had the production server and the staging server was always so slow it was terrible to test things on and the the Phoenix apps 
I also just have a bare bones staging server, and it's just it feels just as snappy as a production server most of the time. Yeah, the the performance has been, and and again, nothing, none of the stuff I've done has been production scale or even deployed yet. But you can just feel it, it's just so much faster, even locally. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. crazy fast. It's just yeah. things things start up almost instantly, and then requests are served. It feels like almost instantly. Yeah, and well, it just. You know, it, that's just how it is. It's like that example I gave way back when, and I was I just kind of scratched my eyes. I was like, "Am I really doing this?" Uh, <laughs> was when I set up the product endpoint, uh, and when I connected a bare bones Phoenix app to the Rails database, and I set up the product endpoint to uh, return all of them with zero pagination, but also return some nested uh, nested objects, and. Mm-hmm. It just beat the pants off of Rails on my MacBook Pro, and I was like, "Am I really doing this?" And that's kind of how it happened. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not even close. It's uh, it's ridiculously fast. Yeah, and we Ugh, uh, so fast. Yeah, I'm, I'm still glad we did. I'm so I'm still really glad that it was a stressful few months, and there are still some things I need to finish out and uh, rework in the Elixir app. But now with scale, like it's just something we don't have to worry about. I mean, unless. We get like product hunted, tech crunched, uh, uh, hacker news. Uh, I don't know. At all at the same time, that might be an issue. But reddited, fireballed. Yeah. But even still, it you know it's just going to cost way less money down the road. And that was the big thing was just money. Knowing that we're we're bootstrapped by a founder, we don't have millions in the bank. Uh, someone's paying for this out of pocket. Every every penny counts, kind of deal. And so. Yeah, I can run the production web server around like $25 a month. Uh, the <laughs> database crazy. is the most expensive. Well, actually, no, the emails are the most expensive thing. Um, but the database after that is the most expensive thing, you know, and that's only 50 bucks a month. So, like, about as cheap as it gets. And we're not even, like, we're not even, we're using, like, 20% of the RAM or something like that. On a on a 5.12 server? Mm-hmm. Jeez, man, that's crazy. Yeah. Incredible stuff. Yeah, it's pretty wild. What a time to be a programmer! Everybody go, everybody go learn Elixir and Phoenix. Oh and yeah, Ecto. go do go do that. That's Paul's your challenge train. for this week, Paul's listeners. on the train. <laughs> I'm on the train. Paul's driving I'm on the, train. the train. Everybody else, get on this train. Paul's it's driving. Train. Paul's conductor now. <laughs> That's awesome. No, I'm glad you like it. Choo choo, y'all. <laughs>